Welcome back to Cake Watch, um, episode 71. After a very long break, um, the podcast about Brexit and about post-Brexit, the EU's relationship with the UK, the UK's relationship with the EU. I'm Chris Kendall. I am a working EU official, um, but I podcast in a strictly personal capacity. And my podcast buddy Steve, Steve Bullock, is currently in semi-retirement, but I've come back to the podcast with uh, an old friend of the podcast, Garvin Walsh. Garvin, hi, how are you doing? Hello, how are you? Well, um, this is very surreal. I haven't done this for a good six months. Um, I'm completely out of practice and it all feels very strange. Um, but um, there's so much been going on that um, I felt the need to vent and how better to vent than on a podcast with, with you. Um, how, where, so where are you at the moment? I'm I'm in Brussels. Um, I'm doing um, some working from home, some working from the office, trying yeah. to keep you know get a bit of variety back into life. Um, yeah, I see you in a in a little sort of booth somewhere. We have a booth here, which is uh, for you know sort of mini studio for calls and all kinds of things. So um, that's well set up. No, it's it's going to be in audio terms. It's not going to be the very best podcast we've ever done because I left all my audio gear back in my flat in Brussels when I left. When I when I last came back to the UK from Brussels, I had no notion that it was going to be a six month break. I um, did not expect to be going into lockdown that quickly. So I I basically came back and left all my all my gear, all my clothes, all my knitting, everything in Brussels, and it's all been sat there gathering dust and being eaten by moths. Yeah, you haven't been you haven't been to Brussels in, since March. No, I haven't left the country since 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 mid March, and it's an extremely uncomfortable and weird feeling. In my fifty one odd years, it's the I think it's it might even be the longest I've ever been in the UK without leaving it actually. Certainly close. So it's very strange, yeah, very strange. So, I mean, you haven't had it yourself then, the dreaded plague? Well, I might have. Um, I need to get myself an antibody test from um, something I had in February. Okay. Which um, it could have been that, it could have been something else. Yeah. Um, but it was a strange respiratory infection that I had. Huh. Uh, quite a bad one. Okay. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't had anything. Well, ironically, we, we we are having weekly tests in our house because we're part of this grand um, testing test scheme, <laughs> the, test, the testing the, scheme. You and the ONS scheme. Yes, so we're part of the ONS scheme, so we're getting weekly tests. That's just a bit of random luck, or did you somehow wangle your way into it? We got a letter in the post saying, would you like to be in it? So we were like, sure, yeah, why not? Not only that, but they're actually paying us for it. So oh, we're right, getting yeah. we're getting a weekly sort of pocket money from the ONS, from the government, for taking part in this testing program. Uh, we don't get negative results. I mean, if, if, if the results are negative, that we just don't hear from them. Um, if if the results are positive, we'll get a text a couple of days later. So it's not useful, for example, for me taking with me to produce and, and, and to produce to yeah. the French um, immigration, French border mm-hmm. police saying, "Look, I haven't got it." Um, nor, nor for the kids going back to school if, if they have a if they have a temperature. But um, it, it's kind of reassuring. But it also feels really strange that we should be getting these tests when all around us are people who 
do have symptoms and can't get tested. And speaking to the to the guy who comes every Sunday morning to give us our test, um, they have their own separate laboratory as well. So um, it's a completely isolated um, exercise that has nothing to do with the wider general testing. So it, I, I find it all extremely strange and hard to understand, but in, it reassuring in a way that I know that I, as of Sunday, I didn't have it. I may have had it. I don't think I did. Well, Steve, of course, did have it. Yeah. Steve Bullock yeah. did have it, um, and he still has long COVID. Um, and he's suffering greatly from it, um, and it sounds awful. So, um, I've bumped into him a couple of times because he for me. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I hope he's all right. I mean, I, I, no, I, I bumped into him. He was coming out of a, a bar, so at least oh, was he? Chance of recovery. He didn't tell me that. Ah, okay. Uh, some some sense of um, things getting better. Well, look, Garvin, um, I'm completely out of practice with doing these podcasts. So I just feel it's not going to be very tight or structured. But that that was always our USP, wasn't it? That we were um, a fireside chat. Um, and you can, you can you can structure things up quite well with the editing, anyway. Well, I could if I wasn't so lazy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I did do a bit of prep. And the prep that I did was to read, was to read, was to listen to the episode that we recorded back in November 2018, so nearly two oh, years yeah, ago. One the audience really loved. <laughs> uh, yeah, that you were you were deeply unpopular after that because you. One of the things that we discussed was whether it might not actually be a better thing for all concerned if the UK did go ahead and Brexit. Well, now we have Brexited, so it's no, it's a, it's a yeah, closed so issue. It's but the back then... Reverse call home column act. Yeah, people, people, were very, people were very cross with you. Um, but I, I, I was torn. I, I mean, emotionally, I disagreed with you because I wanted, I wanted to defeat the Leavers and to defeat Brexit. But intellectually, and with another corner of my heart, I kind of agreed... And I still think that I think I think the podcast that we recorded together has stood up very well for, for for a number of reasons. For that, I mean, I think that indeed we it's better for the EU for sure that we're out uh, for many reasons. But it also the recovery fund, I think, if Britain had still been in. No, I mean, there's just a million reasons why it would. They'd, they'd have said we'll give you it if you end freedom of movement, and then the whole thing would have blown up. Well. Um, I think I think I think it's true to say that in in the last couple of years the EU has gained in confidence and composure and and, and the UK the opposite. But um, so when we were talking about this Austrian school of economics, uh, you were explaining it to me. Um, you were talking. You were t- telling me that it was the Austrian economist Schumpeter who had um, said that who had who had explained that in in a recession it was important that. Um, you didn't have stimulus because the the market needed to regulate itself, and it would be better in the long run for everybody if it just sort of if events took their natural course. Is that correct? Is that the basic Austrian school thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, to which my response was: so the 14th century economic recovery was all due to the Black Death. Um, so the Black Death was a good thing yeah. for the economy in the long run. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> little thinking that two years later we'd be sat here discussing <laughs> the next big recession due to a global plague. <laughs> the black, the black, the black death was um, 
very important for uh, change, changing the um, economic structure of Europe, for increasing the um, economic value of labor relative to the assets owned by the nobility, for stimulating change, for moving people into um, uh, cities. Um, some historians, I think, still credit it um, with um, sparking up Renaissance. Yeah. I wouldn't quite go that far because a lot of the Renaissance actually starts a lot earlier, and that's based on the idea that that there was the Dark Ages and then the Renaissance, which is fairly um, old hat now in historical circles. But um, you know, there's 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 some there's something to that, um, or there's certainly something to that in uh, what happens when you know all these subsidies end, you know, and people people can't stay on furlough when people end up moving to other sorts of um, activity you know are they going to be able to find new jobs what will they be many of the companies that will have been able to support um workers to stay on will have then gone bust um, but this is true this is true in in the brexit sense as well you know uh if you were pursuing the austrian theory of brexit you would say well british manufacturing industry is artificially linked to european continental supply chains by this treaty that we don't believe in far better for the economy to restructure and do the things that Britain's really good at, like um, services, finance, law, higher education, make use of the English language, um, broadcast, um, media success, all that, all that sort of stuff. I mean, that's basically Pat Patrick Minford's argument, you know, get rid of industry. It's not actually what Britain does very well. Better to do other things and restructure the economy that way. The only problem with it is, of course, the Conservatives have just won a whole, whole load of um, industrial and ex-industrial seats. Yeah, well, that's one of the problems with it. Well, my my informed and expert opinions is all fucking stupid, <laughs> it, it, and it makes me angry. Um, and I, I have a question for you, because last time we spoke, um, you told me to my surprise that despite having left the UK and despite being an Irish national, you were still um, a paid-up member of the Conservative Party. So my question is: Two years later, are you still a paid-up member of the British Conservative Party? I think for the next week to ten days, I will still be a paid-up member of the Conservative Party. The next week to ten days. So your subscription's about to run out, and you're not going to renew. Is that it? I, I can't imagine I'll, re I'll renew um, for, uh, if the internal market bill goes through. I mean, I was, why? Why would you still? Why? Why would you still be a member of... I mean, the Conservative Party left you and you left the country. Because, because <laughs> things, why, things, why? Because things, things, are, things um, run on long time scales. <laughs> and, um, you know, there, there's a current, there's, there is a current Prime Minister who calls himself a Conservative and doesn't act like one. No. Um, but it's an open question how long he will stay Prime Minister. And... Yes. I've actually been pretty impressed by um, the efficiency of some of Sunak's schemes, for example. They've been very well designed from the perspective of a business man. You know, because um, the last thing you need in the middle of a pandemic when you're trying to cope with everything else is complicated schemes to apply for. But they, so were, you... very they, were, they were well designed. They've, they've helped a number of companies um, survive at least the first wave. They've kept people in jobs. Um, I mean, the furlough, in a sense, replicates continental European unemployment benefit um, temporarily. Um, but things, you know, the, the um, bounce back loans for small businesses have been very useful and also very straightforward. 
and that's a useful injection of capital as well but that doesn't take time to apply for which is one of the big um you know practical problems if you're a small business and trying to get access to capital you have to do so much paperwork for the due diligence that it's actually a massive waste of time and you better concentrate on doing what you normally do um so that so there's there's clearly some you know scope and talent there in the conservative party for doing sense well you stuff. think you think that's the conservative party rather than the treasury um uh, yeah i think it's both uh, the treasury were quite resistant to a lot of this stuff uh-huh. you see that in the number of ministerial directions that had to be issued to allow these things to take place okay um they're, they're nearly all they're nearly all treasury ones and they're very much related to this stuff because they said according to the rules they obviously have to apply they said this is um uh you know, this is not value for money in any conventional metric. And it's true, it's not value for money under any conventional metric. But there are extraordinary times. If you combine this, and this is obviously a very non-Austrian school thought, if you combine this by um, government borrowing at zero or almost negative in- interest rates, there's not really any cost to doing this right now. Right. But you're, but you, uh, among those uh, schemes that you think are worthy of praise do you include the eat out to help out scheme i think that one has a huge problem with potential fraud it does have the amount of simplicity and this was one of the risks pointed out that people could just be shoving these receipts into their takings and it becomes a disguised subsidy to restaurants without people actually eating out um maybe they need to change it to eat out and help out outside because of the change in the evolution of understanding of the disease now that we see it's more more aerosolized and less in droplet form, maybe it needs to be accompanied by other public health measures for um, this But I don't, it doesn't seem to be the, that doesn't seem to actually be the driver of a lot of infections. You'd see infections in a different population group if it was. But you're seeing, you're seeing a rise in infections among people who are, uh, in most places, starting among people who are in their 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe this is from summer holidays, from them being around and out more over mm-hmm. over the summer. Maybe it's just because they're generally less cautious at that people generally are less cautious at that age anyway. Um, people are the back of the office, maybe. Maybe but you're seeing it in places where people haven't particularly gone back in the office. Mm-hmm. So, listen, I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about. Um, I'm sorry I, um, to cut you off. I want to talk about the lie of the week that we did back in November 2018 which we called the lie of the week the lie of the year the lie of the entire process which is the Irish border the 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 Northern Ireland backstop I'm going to stop um, you and say there's, there's, there's a bigger lie right go on and it's the lie that came out most clearly with the internal market bill which is that which is it's it's the lie that there is such a thing as absolute sovereignty yes this is a this is a conceptual lie. Yes, it's conceptually untrue. Yes, and that in theory a state can be sovereign about those things that affect only it itself. Yes, but it cannot actually be sovereign over things that um, happen between states by agreement. Yes, you have to reach agreement. You have to make binding treaties. Otherwise, nothing happens. Yes, uh, the, the, I mean, and in a sense, their problem with international treaties is that they're international. <sighs> So and that's that's the big that's the big mistake at the heart of the whole Brexit thing. They they imagine being completely free of all restraints, but that was only possible in their folk memory because when Britain was last not in any of these institutions, it was a hugely powerful empire, so it could get its way through 
the sheer size and force. And the error in negotiation with, with the EU, um, you know, isn't really a moral one. It's this practical one that the EU is vastly more powerful and the UK can't actually um, impose its will on the EU. Even if the UK were, were pursuing a sensible and competent negotiating strategy trying to execute this mm-hmm. um, mistake, they're also executing it badly. But even if they weren't, mm-hmm. even if they did have a, an excellent team that mastered all the detail, that was able to go point by point with the EU team on disputing the Northern Ireland Protocol, even if they didn't make unforced errors like openly saying they break international law. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why they didn't just dispute the EU's interpretation of it carry on with the internal market bill, say, no, we think this actually, or draft the bill in such a way that um, allowed them to achieve their other objectives without uh, without saying they had to break the um, uh, international treaty that they themselves signed. Um, but there seemed to be, you know, the core is they don't believe in restraints on themselves internally or externally. Yeah, it's the sovereignty. Internally, that's, a, you know, in a sense, that's a matter of domestic politics. But externally, you can't survive as a medium-sized power. No. No, but if you break your own agreements. Well, look. This, no, this... no trade deal with the United States, no trade deal with the EU, and no trade deal with China. No. Who's left? Yeah. No, indeed. Indeed. No, you're right. Um, you're right. That, that That's uh, an enormous overarching lie. And it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the lie they tell themselves that, that underpins the entire Brexit process. You're right. But uh, it, it, it's... Essentially, um, the same lie coming at, coming at it from different angles. You, the, the 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 Northern Ireland, the, the 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 border in Ireland or in the Irish Sea, either way, the 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 Northern Ireland Protocol in the Withdrawal Agreement is based on a lie that they told themselves and that they told the public, which is that um, there won't be border checks between the between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK there won't be a hard border and it doesn't undermine the Good Friday Agreement this was a lie that they told themselves and they told the general public again and again and again and it's the lie that we called out two years ago because they were saying it then they were then, they were, at the time they had said that they had not fully understood the implications of the Northern Ireland Protocol so that they reserved the right unilaterally to uh, renege upon it to reject yeah. it um, which we said at the time was was was, was species cant that was obviously a lie because of course they got it because the entire point of the backstop as we had all been saying as they had been saying themselves all along was to catch to catch it in case there was no agreement this is how you this is how you defend and protect the Good Friday Agreement should there not be a future relationship agreement should, and we have now the exact same lie repeated two years later um, trying to take advantage of people's short-term memories which is that um, oh well we signed the withdrawal agreement but obviously the Northern Ireland Protocol is only there in case we have a future relationship and if the future relationship talks fail then obviously we reserve the right unilaterally to ditch the Northern Ireland Protocol it's exactly the same argument two years later this, this argument doesn't work abroad Exactly for the reason that you said, which is that it, the reason that they feel even remotely entitled to make this argument is because they're sovereigntists. Is because ultimately they think they 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 will not listen to the um, their law tutors to to their constitutional law tutors to they will not they will not listen to their international law one hundred and one. 
they reject the argument that international law has primacy and they say no we're sovereign and therefore if we say it's so and and and, and according to our own internal constitution it, it becomes law then that that takes that trumps any international obligations that we might have which obviously is ridiculous because if everybody did that where would we be but it's exactly the same uh, self delusion it's exactly the same exceptionalist arrogance that is the Northern Ireland process, that, that is their approach to the Northern Ireland project. It's just coming at it from a different angle. And it's not, under, not understanding that the, um, I'm going to use the unionist term for it here, the Belfast Agreement, a treat is, first of all, it's a binding international treaty. Secondly, it qualifies the sovereignty of Northern Ireland because it recognizes that the political um, allegiance of Northern Ireland is a matter for the people of Northern Ireland to decide in a referendum they can have. You know, unlike, for example, the uh, the case in Scotland or in England, which is, a, you know, formally and legally still a matter for the UK state. So they made the they made a formal change. Mm. They, they agreed as an international treaty, a yeah. formal change to the status of Northern Ireland compared to, you know, it still remains in the UK, but unlike the rest of the UK. Yes. There's the formal constitutional right to do something else if it has a vote and wants to do that. Which was only possible politically in the EU because it um, that that change in Northern Ireland sovereignty was if you like diluted and disguised by the fact that all the various parties were in the EU. And I, I made I I made a speech in Austria, funnily enough, on precisely this point about ten years ago now, um, in the context of talking about the EU's capacity to solve conflicts. And I, Northern Ireland was the great example that I used. Uh, it was thanks to the EU um, that and, and and the EU as guarantor, but also the, just the, just the practical practical fact of being in the EU that this was this 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 could happen. So the act of leaving the EU necessarily undermined the um, foundations on which the Northern Ireland, uh, on which the, the Belfast Agreement, if you want to call it that, was built. So inevitably, and this is, this is something that it, many people have, many, many commentators have acknowledged that it was not sufficiently um, discussed and recognised and talked about at the time of the referendum. But very soon afterwards, when it, beca it became clear that the leaving the EU necessitates either a, a border between the Republic of Ireland and, Ireland and the Northern Ireland, or a border in the Irish Sea, or the UK remaining within the Customs Union. Leaving, yeah, or and elements of the single market. One of the three, had, yeah, but one of the three have to be. I mean, it is not possible to leave the EU without one of those three things happening. But consistently, all along, the Brexiters, the, 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 the UK government, have denied that. They have not, they have hid their heads in the sand about it. They will not, even when they sign the withdrawal agreement, they still pretend it's not real. In fairness to Theresa May, which is now becoming very fashionable in Remainer circles too, I saw Best for Britain tweeted a Theresa May speech approvingly yesterday. Um, she came to understand that. And the reason you had ended up with a backstop and she made the concessions back in December 2017 was because she realized it was the only way to accept the um, consequences of wanting to leave the 
in her case, the elements of the single market, because she wanted to restrict free movement of people. So Theresa, May, to, to Theresa May's position may have been hard line, but at least she understood it was totally consistent, the occasions yeah. of what she was doing. But as we said last time, as we said two years ago in our conversation, there are some people in Whitehall that get it, but and there were even at the time in Theresa May's cabinet some, some cabinet ministers that got it. And in hindsight, perhaps she got it. But the the, the motivating force here, the the people who are put, who are setting the agenda and who are now in government don't get it and didn't get it and refuse it. They refuse to get it. They won't get it because it it clashes directly with their sovereignist worldview. So they they will not get. They won't get it. They refuse to get it and they're never going to get it. So with this was this crunch was always going to happen. This clash was always going to come. And I think honestly, I think the EU knew this has known this all along, knew it back two years ago, because back then, two years ago, they were already extremely pissed off with the way in which the UK was playing fast and loose with, with, with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's why it was... That's why you had had it sort of tied down so tightly in the withdrawal agreement. And they knew it was coming. And so I think what people... So the, 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 the internal market bill is shocking... But in a way, it's not surprising. Yeah, and I think a lot of people expected that to come. Yeah, and the but the, the you expected it, which is why the dispute resolution procedures are very tough. Mm, mm, mm. They just didn't expect they didn't expect the UK to shoot their own case in the foot so in soon the, at right. the arbitration panel by saying we're breaking the agreement. No, in public That's in in, very in parliament. Short arbitration panel. Yeah, yeah. You say in parliament in front of everybody. Yeah, yeah. We're breaking international law. You know, forget about the 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 hedging, about the conditions. Forget about the specific and limited. That yeah, we're breaking international law. Okay, well, guilty. Okay, so um, so the this <laughs> I don't, I don't know what to say. It's what do you do with that? What do you do with a rogue country like that? So. <laughs> well, you you have to be. Very careful to have very strong um, unilateral retaliatory steps in any yeah. trade agreement you do with them. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think that's where we're heading. We're heading for a trade war. I remember um, just straight after the um, trade after the referendum, I was at a thing with a former Irish prime minister who was saying, um, and of course, in any trade deal, we're going to need um, very strong IASDS with the UK to um, enforce any trade agreement against a British nationalist government. Yeah, and this was a this was this was a this was a this was a former Irish prime minister who um, was always pilloried for being pro-British. Yeah, the the general attitude in the institutions now towards the UK as well. Failed state, failed state. Leave it to Stu. What about Scottish independence? Well, and let it all sort, let it all find its level. I think. Wait, 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 wait for the wait for the. That's going to happen. Speaking of cake, um, Nicola Sturgeon has her own form of cake on um, the Scottish currency. Oh, I can't get excited about the debate about the Scottish currency. I, I, for me, and you surely, as as an Irishman, must look at that debate and think, well, goodness sake, you know, in in, in the long run, what a ridiculous thing to get hung up. She'll on. be she'll be she'll, she'll be fine as long as um, the government in London keeps screwing everything up. It yeah, I mean, for, as, as far as the currency is concerned, I mean, either either have your own currency or have the euro. But I mean, you know, it's not an issue. If the government um, gets its act together there in London, then she might have to answer that question. If not, she won't. 
You don't want to answer it beforehand in a referendum because you need you want Scottish leavers to support you. Otherwise, there aren't enough sure. um, votes to win independence. So that could trigger them. So you can see why she's being ambiguous. Obviously, what will happen is they'll have a Scottish currency and then they'll join the EU and they'll join the euro. Yeah, exactly. It's obvious. And, but but she can't say that at the moment. Well, it, it, it's strange that she can't. Indeed, that you're right. That's what will happen. But listen, that's, that's an interesting um, train, train of thought. I mean, what do you see as the prospects of the UK having um, a, a sensible government in Westminster in the next five years? I mean. there, 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 there are two um, prospects for a sen- sensible government. If you look at the interests of the Conservative Party itself, and you think, um, unlike Cummings, who famously isn't a Tory, but you think of um, you know, the, the party interests, they... They say to Boris, you know, after the thing is done, right? Okay, you've done your job. You're um, t- time time to go. Replace them. This was all before second wave COVID, so it, that mucks up this timetable. But you, you say thank thank you very much. You've got us Brexit. Well done. Off you go now. Um, put Sunak in. Run another election on t- on saying it's time for a change. Time for the first Asian Prime Minister of Britain. At that point, you make Starmer look old hat. Labour look stuffy. And you have a good chance of winning an election framed in that way. The other <laughs> uh, Now, Boris is in a circle and Cummings will fight to the death um, to stop that happening because it obviously checks them out. Um, and before the, inter- before the internal market bill, I would have said it would be very difficult to get that kind of change through uh, the Conservative Party for the moment. Um, but if... The Tories end up falling behind Labour in the polls. They're already tied. Um, it's only a couple of weeks since James Forsyth wrote a piece saying, why are the Tories still up in the polls? No, they're not. Hmm. Um, and I think the answer was just that a lot of people were on holiday and not paying any attention to politics. Are there enough sensible Tories left for that even to be an, op- an option? Yeah. And there are enough Tories scared about losing their seats. The, the, the challenge is it would need to be done before... Um, Sunak needs to impose any kind of austerity measures to make the book balance again, because if if he can do it while, because his 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 strength in rivaling Boris has got to do with his ability to his his popularity. Otherwise, he's just a young guy who um, has only been in politics for um, a couple of terms. Why should he be prime minister other than his you know ambition? But if he stays popular and people see him as competent, um, he can. Was a very strong challenge, but I mean, ha- hasn't his star already been falling? I mean, it, it fading. I mean, what, well, what's what's the what's his popularity if 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 it exists? What's his popularity built upon? Well, it's built upon um, digging okay. deep and pulling out. Um, but it's also, you... but it's also, but it's also built on him doing things that actually work. You know, it's not just that he's given people money, but people can understand that. The, the things func- things things he's in charge of have functioned, whereas the things Matt Hancock's in charge of have not. Um, now, that may be that may be unfair, and that Sunak's got an easier job here. But well, it may be that I'm not because I'm not plugged into the business side of things. I, I don't see that. But the only thing that I see um, with 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 Sunak's face on it is the well, there's the furlough scheme, and there's the um, eat out to help out, which um, I think. Both of which I mean, are likely to come back and and bite him because the the eat out to help out, I think, is, is going to be surely associated with the 
second wave um and it, so it should it seems to me as as to furlough well that's only going to help him if it continues through the second wave do you think that's or he finds some ways i mean he started hinting that he, he might have to find new ways of continuing it i mean it may be that you know the it may be the best um a more sensible thing to do would be to say, well, you get, you're no longer at your company, you get your furlough pay, um, provided you sign up to some suitable retraining scheme. Maybe that's what that would make more sense. Cause if people can't do anything for the next three or four months mm. and those who don't have small children to look after because their schools are, are being closed or their kids have been sent back to it, should at least be able to improve their skills in some way so that when jobs are open again, they do actually have, <laughs> so again, that, that, how's that going to help him in terms of general popularity? Um, well, you can have your you can have your furlough money, but you have to go to night school. I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, it, who are these sensible Tories though that that would? I mean, didn't they effectively jettison almost their? Yeah, they just jettison quite a few. There's still quite a lot. But there are two other there are two other important issues of substance that have offended May and Howard. One is international, but the other one is domestic. It's Clause forty five is is, a, is an outrageous attack on the rule of law in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, in that it seeks to put uh, aspects of this legislation beyond judicial review, mm. which breaks a fundamental constitutional principle. Mm. Yeah, and it, if it ever got into law, it would likely be subtly evaded by the courts. Mm. It would do their thing of saying, well, that clause doesn't actually mean what it says it means. Um, because because we, as the courts, have a historic right to um, interpret legislation. Mm. We have that independent of anything a parliament could do. And they, the courts, the courts have seen that in a couple of recent cases as a fundamental limit on parliamentary sovereignty. In the Privacy International case, and in another one, any Simic, I think it is from the sixties. So they, the courts don't, courts always assert a right to interpret the law. Mm-hmm. They obviously say that it's for Parliament to make it for them to interpret it, and that's the fundamental division of authority that goes back to um, at least the sixteenth century. Mm. <clears throat> But it won't get that far anyway, because there's no way this is getting through the Lords, hmm. especially now that people like Howard are voting against it, and even Theresa May has said she's voting against it in the Commons. She said she's voting against it? Yeah, yesterday. I didn't know that she had said that she would vote against. I, I was aware that she had made well, a speech. She not for, but but hmm. she made a speech and said, I, I will not be supporting this bill. Hmm. Hmm. I cannot support this bill. Hmm. Um, I mean, she might have said, I don't know, but... Hmm. Um, it, it, it is significant that people like that are saying this is unacceptable. These are people who are, you know, tough supporters of executive power. Mm. Mm. They've had, um, you know, they've had um, innumerable brushes with the judiciary. Mm. But this is too far even for them mm. to say we've signed a treaty and we're going to break our own treaty. Mm. I'm not talking about breaking some obscure point of customary international law. Mm. It's a treaty they themselves have signed. Yeah. yeah, it's very shocking. It is very shocking. For, for someone, um, you know, for people, for people like Theresa May and Michael Howard, who are punctilious, punctilious people who believe in process, particularly Michael Howard, um, 
they this is this is just completely unacceptable and lacks all integrity. And if Prop Forty Five is allowed is allowed through, it will appear in other pieces of legislation. Yes, exactly. It, it's um it's crossing a a line that you just never thought would be crossed. It, it, it it's proper autocracy stuff. It's proper Ermächtigungsgesetz uh, stuff. I mean, I, I mean, even 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 Orban doesn't say he's breaking the law openly. Yeah. But in terms of a single, just a single piece of legislation that effectively does away with judicial overview, does away with parliamentary privilege, does away with the primacy of international law, empowers the executive to act uh, without restraint. And it's not even, and it's not even in, in in the manifesto. And goes clear against the manifesto. Has um, it has no legitimacy even. In, in in terms of the populist sort of fake legitimacy that you hear banded about around, around Brexit, it's it is very it is very shocking, but it it, it comes um, some way up the wedge where the thin end of the wedge was um, a few years back, probably the referendum or something around it. But but um, where we now are is is really it's it's. I mean, it could it could it could get worse. I mean, to fulfil my role as Cassandra. One outcome is that I mean, it's looking less likely than it was a week or two ago, but um, one outcome would be that the government um, tries to get through this, this through the Lords, fails. At that point, they say they have to call a people versus the peers election. Now, in that manifesto, they would include a Lords abolition and um, courts abolition kind of bill in the manifesto. Now it's it's an open question about whether that would actually that would actually that. well they could they'd I can find that yeah but they'd find other ways of of, of em- emasculating the Lords surely they wouldn't they wouldn't risk no you, you hear you hear you hear talk about it actually really yeah, yeah. Um, I've, 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 yeah. does that does that that's the sort of maximum confrontation option yeah the slightly less but still maximum confrontation fully confrontational option is just to pack the Lords with the hundreds of peers again. That seems more like their style. But that's not enough. They don't have enough time because they have. This has to be done by January thirty first, uh, December thirty first. Otherwise, um, the withdrawal agreement is implemented. If the bill can't get through, the governing legislation is the withdrawal agreement implementation bill, not whatever, not the internal market bill. The internal market bill also does a whole load of anti devolution things, by the way. Mm, yeah. So. As a side thing, they're provoking a big fight with the Scots and Nats that they're not even don't even realise they're having. Yeah. Because they're so they ignore Scotland so much. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is sort of like you know, it's sort of like the imperial days where you alienate one of your seventy two colonies without um, mm. um realizing it because you're focused on everything else. But yeah. it's not really justifiable when you're talking about Ten percent of your own country, but it, it it it's entirely justifiable in the context of their sovereigntist worldview, as, we, as, as we've as we've it's said so, many so times. worldview, but also their obsession with winning the daily media war over anything else. Mm-hmm. What they care about, because they're they're all journalists, is how do we get the how do we get the good headlines today? How do we get the good headlines tomorrow? 
um, which is why they promise all this rubbish they can't implement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And moon, moonshots and other nonsense. Mm. Yeah, I mean that was just. I mean, it just—it's just too large a figure to be remotely plausible. Mm. Mm. You know, twice the defense budget. Yes. You know, in 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 so far as there's an economic policy ahead of this, it, it's to fo to follow that of the Italian governments before they join the euro. You've got you've got a successful bit of the economy, the city. You use that to prop up industries in the rest of the country through state aid. You then um. And devalue the currency to keep paying for it. It doesn't really work, but um, you just end up with zeros on the pound after a while. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't work to support the, the, the and the city doesn't mind because it just multiplies the nominal value of things and carries on. And then um, the subsidized bits of the country get subsidies of ever decreasing value. Mm. Living standards fall and. Especially in the north, and um, whether they fall in the, around the city is another matter. But oh boy, um, back to Britain is Argentina. But... Yes, yes, yes. Argentina is is somewhere in the UK's future, perhaps as 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 an example of a, of, a, of a country that was extremely rich and um, yeah impoverished exactly. itself with poor with poor populist government. Yep, it's it's the canonical example of that. Um, tell us about what you're doing at the moment. Where, where, where uh, you, you, last time we spoke, you were very busy working on um, dodgy regimes in Hungary and so on, and uh... still, still, still doing that. And I'm also um, have a new um, tech venture, which is um, a trade policy intelligence service. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's called Tariff Delta, and what we're doing is we're um, taking um, what companies buy, buy and sell, uh, organized by commodity code, taking a model of the world trade system and how that world trade system changes when there are new treaties, new events like Brexit, different decisions of the WTO, and providing a figure for how um, these changes might affect uh, your bottom line. So you can find out based on precisely what it is that you trade, how that's going to affect um, what your... Um, your tariff bills that you and your trading partners will somehow have to negotiate to pay. So it's it's tariffs. You're focusing tariffs. On, on tariffs. Focus um, on tariffs. Uh, you know, in the long run, we'd, we'd like to expand this to the rules of origin, the carbon border adjustment tax and other things. But tariffs is the first thing, okay. thing we're doing. Uh, and actually, I want to say we're hiring. Oh. Uh, so we're looking for a couple of developers. Um, probably... Um, because of the amount of money we have available, probably in the newer EU member states, I suspect. Yeah. Um, um, where there are obviously very many excellent people we'd love to work with. Yeah, I don't know how many listeners we have there. We might have a few. I'm not sure that your average um, Estonian or Slovak is actually particularly interested in um, Brexit f four years on um, and listening to people like me complain about it. But if you're a Hungarian programmer and are interested in doing something uh, interesting in a new startup, then you know where to go. Yeah. So, well, good luck with that. Um, Gavin, is there anything else you want to talk about while while we're on? No, I think that that's covered um, most most of stuff. Remember how we were 
there were all those things about, oh, there was going to be a security deal, there was going to be a deal on equivalence, there was going to be GDPR deals. None of that's going to happen. Do you know, that was the other thing that I wanted to talk about that, that we had discussed last time round. We spent a lot of time in November 2018 talking about Jeremy Hunt's desire for the UK to have some kind of status, some kind of seat on yeah. the Foreign Affairs Council. And it yeah. just struck me how far we've come. I mean, at the time, obviously, we spent um, a good hour or so poo-pooing the whole idea, which we thought was ridiculous, uh, and trying to get to the bottom of what they actually meant by it. Well, they, did, now, they, want, they, want, they wanted it, and they seriously thought that Britain's military contribution to EU defence would um, um, enable them to have some leverage. Yes, and, it was... It was, and, it was... and, the, and the idea wasn't completely dis- dismissed out of hand in Berlin, and it was dismissed completely out of hand in Paris. Well, the, the... And, and and Eastern Eastern Europe didn't really think that Britain made significant contributions, as far as they were concerned. Well, it it was the United States that mattered. Yes. Well, the the um, okay. So, the, the t- without rehashing the conversation that we had two years ago. Uh, the idea was a non-starter in terms of participating in EU machinery. The idea, if if we're talking about some kind of forum where the EU machine can talk yeah. to the UK machine, <laughs> fine. But you're not going to get the UK participating in Foreign Affairs Council meetings or in the Political and Security Committee. It's ridiculous. Um, uh, the other thing that we said was, look, um, the... Well, at least that I said was that, in my view, the UK had always vastly overstated its importance in terms of the EU's common foreign security policy. I'm not saying that the UK has vastly overstated its importance in terms of EU Europe's defence, um, though it might have done a little bit there as well. But certainly in terms of the very specific EU foreign policy and defence policy and security policy. I have, um, I, have, I have a paper on this coming out with the Conservative Group for Europe as part of a volume they're producing in the next month or two. Okay. On, you know, what a realistic UK defence policy could be given mm. all the constraints and money available. And that that will be very interesting. It's a pretty, um, pretty sobering look, actually. I should think it would paper. be. Because I think we've moved on quite a, quite away from where we were two years ago, where um, that was still an aspiration on the part of the British government that that, that, that the UK could be very closely integrated on with the EU. I, 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 mis- I miserably suggest they might want to um, lend one of the hu- uh, aircraft carriers to a European state. <laughs> um, yeah, the, or South Korea, one of the two, because um, they might be able to provide aircraft for it. Yeah. Well, I mean, but doing doing that would make sense as part of an alliance. Britain can pr- provide the ship; someone else provides the um, escorting carrier group, and the third power provides the planes. Why not? Well, that wasn't that the idea originally. It was all going to be about cooperating with the French. Well, there, there were going to be two. One of one originally going to be three built as part of the production plan. Um, one all British, one all French, and one that might get shared or something. And in the end, the French cancelled theirs completely. Huh. But they haven't. They have. They have the rights to the design, so they could. You know, they've already got a deal to kind of build one if they ever wanted to. Okay. As far as I remember, um, don't don't really quote me on that because I'm a bit rusty on the details of that. We don't. We don't do research on the, on this podcast. <laughs> At least I don't. <laughs> it's very much seat of the pants. Listen, Gavin, thanks very much indeed. And um, it's been a particularly important podcast for me because it's the first one after a very long break. Um, and um, 
you know, my very best wishes to Steve if he's listening. Um, I hope um, that your recovery continues. Stay out of bars, um, Steve. Um, and I'm going to try to keep doing this, not particularly regularly, but um, that said, uh, I have got something lined up for next week, which I'm quite excited about. So watch this space. Uh, however, we are recording on Tuesday, the something of September, the 22nd of September. Um, I suspect that this won't actually go live until Wednesday. Um, but um, we haven't disappeared entirely. Um, likely to be back um, again in a couple of weeks at the latest. And then we'll just see. We'll just see how it goes. Um, if there's a demand for it... Um, I'll I'll keep doing it when 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 I can and bring in friends of the show to do it. Um, so thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Garvin, for your input and uh, keep keep subscribed and and you'll see new episodes pop up as and when they do. So right, good night. Good night. Natural loss, they can't protect us all.